So today's story carries on the theme of, of healing, which we delved into a little yesterday. We mentioned yesterday that uh, Pope Benedict XVI uh, said just a, uh, quite, quite a powerful phrase uh, when he said that the entire work of redemption is contained in this, in this idea of healing. Healing is the summary, if you will, of the entire story of redemption, healing. And we looked at the fact that healing isn't or shouldn't be understood solely as the healing of the body. Because while that is important, it's only one part of, of, of us as human beings. We are body, mind, and soul. So what God wants to do ultimately in any healing process is guide us to our greatest good, our ultimate good, which is heaven. So there's no point healing someone's body just so that they can sin more. So uh, if, if, if carrying an illness helps us get to heaven, and it can in a, in, in, a, in a strange way, not that we would wish illness on anyone, but in the Lord's plan, he, allow, he can allow these things. If that actually helps me get to heaven, then ultimately it becomes something good when carried out of love. So that's what we're looking into t- today, the story of the paralytic. I think, I find it really interesting <coughs> that we hear this story. So Jesus, you can just imagine Jesus gathered in, Jesus in a house and a whole crowd gathers, you know. So people are coming to listen to this guy. Maybe they've heard about some of the miracles that he has worked. They've heard about his preaching and teaching. Uh, some are coming just out of curiosity, not because they necessarily want to encounter God in a deeper way, but just out of curiosity. Who is this guy? And we've heard all these things that he does, and people, then some apparently, some of the authorities don't like him. Why? What's, what's he after doing or saying? So a lot of people come and gather. Okay. So four friends come bringing a paralytic. Now, I love that idea just for a start. That these four friends, they have this, these four guys, they have this, this friend who they care about enough to carry who knows how far to get him to Jesus. Right? So they, they, they carry him. You can imagine then, so they have this, this very simple stretcher, two poles and a bit of a blanket stapled to it somehow. They get to the, to near the house and you can see like the, the, the crowd. We don't understand how on earth are we going to push through these? Because like, we need quite a bit of room to maneuver four people in a stretcher. So five people effectively. Um, so you can just imagine one of them saying, I know what we'll do. Let's bust open the man's roof. Yeah. That's a great idea. So they climb up somehow and start stripping the, the, the tiles off the roof and lower him down. And Jesus, the, 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 or Mark, the, the evangelist today, makes no reference at all to the owner of the house and his reaction. You know, they say, oh, look at their faith. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? And you can imagine the owner of the house going, this is my house. <laughs> like, I need that roof. Are you putting that back afterwards? What's it like? I mean, compensation. Thank God I have insurance. I mean, like, it's, but, but what does Jesus see? Jesus sees the faith of these friends. And it's just, it's, I think it's just, it's just a, a beautiful thing. Seeing their faith, plural, not solely the, the faith of the, of the paralytic, which we presume he had faith too, but seeing their faith. It's an interesting thing because how our faith affects others. You know, like how the, the faith of parents can be a blessing to their children, even though the children haven't asked for the blessing. The faith of the parents is a blessing for them. How in the book of Genesis, how, how, how God wishes that Abraham be a blessing to his offspring, to the generations that will follow after him. That I can be, my faith can be a blessing to others. It's not just a personal thing. My faith affects others. My, my reaction to, to, to God's grace has an effect on other people's lives. And has an effect on other people's ability to receive grace. It's very, it's very interesting how, how yes, we're individuals, but we're also 
we're also connected. We're also a family. We're also a, a body. And even though when I <coughs> eat or drink something good, I feel it first in my mouth, then in my stomach, but it affects everything from my earlobes to my toenails, uh, ultimately. You know, so, so as a body, we're, we're, we are united. What, what happens one part of the body affects others. That works both ways, positively and negatively. Sinful effects of, of, of people, of my sinful, my sinful acts, they have an effect not necessarily because people know or see what happened, but if they, if they darken my soul somehow, then they, they impede me in being uh, an effective channel of grace for others. If, on the other hand, uh, we collaborate with God's grace, then, then that channel is free. I'm, I become a, a, a channel of, of the Lord's life for others. So we are connected. So Jesus sees the faith of these other people. And, and he works this, this inward and then outward miracle. Okay, so... Uh, he looks at him and he doesn't say primarily or he doesn't say first and foremost may your legs again be strengthened may your paralysis be healed but he says your sins are forgiven he starts there he starts with your sins are forgiven very interesting place to start now obviously this is all happening in front of a crowd too so everyone, everyone can hear and he would have known that scribes or Pharisees would not have been pleased to hear him say your sins are forgiven because they don't know yet who he is or they don't believe who he is so they as such rightly say who can forgive sins but God alone I mean if you can imagine any world leader or president arriving somewhere and seeing a sick man and says your sins are forgiven the whole place what, what? sorry you, you uh, who's the uh, who's the French president I should know Macron, yes. You know, if he were to come to some summit and say, hello, my dear friend, your sins are forgiven. You know, like, that's just ridiculous. You have no authority or power to do that. You just can't. That's just ridiculous. So looking at Jesus then, sorry, like you're a, a carpenter. Um, this really, this area of forgiving sins, that's not, that's not your, your, your field at all. So who can forgive sins but God alone? So Jesus understands, and he's not, he's not impatient with them, but whenever Jesus works a miracle, or whenever scripture, the, Old, the New Testament, the, the Gospels especially, whenever they refer to Jesus working miracles, they don't call them miracles, they call them signs. Signs. Because a sign refers, points to something else. A sign indicates more than itself. You know, a road sign saying Dublin isn't Dublin. A road sign pointing to Dublin, points to a, you know, a place you'd never want to go, but I mean, um, but at least you know where it is, so you know where, not to, you know where to avoid, right? Dublin that way, I'm going. <laughs> so, so uh, no, no, Dublin is wonderful. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so signs point to something else. So a miracle that Jesus works isn't, isn't it's not just to give the man his sight back or, or, his, or heal his legs or heal his paralysis <coughs> or heal his leprosy. That, that those miracles, they, they're not an end unto themselves. They're a sign of something greater. They're a sign that the kingdom of God is among you. They're a sign that Jesus is the Messiah. That when Jesus then says something, it's now backed up by the fact that he works miracles. So when he says things that are, like, like your sins are forgiven, or when he preaches in a way that has authority, again, you can preach with authority just by being kind of domineering, but that's not Jesus' way. Jesus preaches with authority, 
and then backs up what he says by working miracles, acts of mercy, and also like miracles directed towards like the poor and the abandoned and the lost, those who are cast aside and left on the streets. That's mainly who he works miracles for. Or, or then the centurion's servant, so a foreigner. So he's, he's working miracles not just like for this kind of closed uh, clique of orthodox Jews at the time uh, and, and, and their needs. He's, he's going out to the fringes. But he's working miracles that everyone can see. These are supernatural events. What he's saying must be true. And that's the point. That's the point of these miracles. To back up, to, to prove that if he can do these things, then what he's saying is true. Now, like, if, if what he's saying is true, this is something we come across all the time, you and I. If Jesus is God, and if what he says, therefore, is, is if we believe he's a good God, not just a kind of a creator God who likes you know, building things up out of Lego and then smashing them, but no, he's actually a good God. He creates things and wants us to, to spend forever with him in heaven, so he's a good God. Then what he says is true, and what he says we should do. And that's, this is always the, the struggle that we find in, in our faith, right? Where we, we like I remember when I was in, in college, um, I had some very interesting conversations with uh, some of my housemates. So I was in a house, it was just myself and one guy and eight girls. Um, so that was interesting. Uh, it smelled interesting, actually. Just like, it was like a body shop in every floor in every room. But anyway, it just smelled like yeah, soaps and shampoos and coconut, coconut oil, especially. But anyway, I digress. Um, very interesting conversations with them then about you know, morality and things. And again, the whole idea when it comes to mortal sin, that if you don't know something is a mortal sin, not, not so much that you can get away with it, but at least your culpability is greatly reduced. But once you know something is wrong, and you do it anyway, then you've no excuse. So we had very interesting conversations then about, about sexuality and contraception and, and abortion, all those, kind of, all those kind of hot topics. Uh, and on one hand, like, there, there were two especially who really wanted to know what I was saying, and really didn't want to know at the same time because they knew like now if I know this and still do it then that makes me more guilty so maybe I'd rather not know you know when it comes to discovering our faith maybe there are things we'd rather not know maybe we'd rather just kind of remain in ignorance because then then at least we can plead ignorance Uh, the Lord wants to lead us into the truth he wants to lead us into true healing in our experience of of suffering there's one uh, beautiful truth one beautiful uh, teaching if you will of of the church which i think is is really important to underline as well that if the ultimate goal right the ultimate goal is heaven it means the ultimate goal isn't just a healthy body here on earth until we die there's something there's something greater something deeper going on here okay and this is this, this mystery, this, this, this wonderful uh, truth of, of, of redemptive suffering or co-redemptive suffering. So that the Lord on the cross shows us the value that suffering can have when it's carried out of love. And therefore the suffering, the value that suffering can have if I unite mine, my suffering, my, my little drop of blood to the chalice of his divine blood. 
then my suffering can take on a value, can take on a meaning. So it's, again, this is just, it just goes way beyond, uh, it goes way beyond me. We affect each other. So if in my suffering I unite that to the suffering of Jesus, then this unites me to, it unites me to him. It gives purpose and meaning to my suffering. So in some way it alleviates the suffering. Not that the suffering is taken away, but because now it has a purpose, because I'm offering it up for someone or for something, uh, it now has meaning and purpose. So, so that, that makes it some way lighter. Like if you're going through kind of meaningless suffering, if you're being tortured, it's just meaningless suffering, it's horrible. Whereas if you're going to like the dentist and you're, you're suffering because of that, but there's, a, there's an ultimate good you know, to be attained here, that the abscess will be taken away or that your teeth will be straight or whatever it is, have, it, the fact that suffering might ha- has meaning makes it a lot easier to carry. Even the, the, the pain of childbirth, right? This, the, the, the purpose, it's, it's difficult, I presume. Um, but at the end of it, there's a baby, a new life. So it, it has meaning, it has purpose. So the Lord, in, in his divine wisdom, and this, is, this isn't human logic at all, knows that in our suffering, in our darkness, in our loneliness, uh, in our what can feel like abandonment at times, that all of this can have meaning and purpose when it's united to his cross. Like John Paul II was an amazing example of this. He died in 2005, in April. And in, I think, February of that year, <clears throat> February 2005, he had a tracheotomy. That's how it's pronounced, tracheotomy. Uh, so he came out for the papal audience with this thing. You couldn't really see it because it was, it was under his collar, but you could absolutely hear it because he... You couldn't understand a word he said. In fact, if anything, I, was, I lived in Rome at the time. When I, whenever we went to papal audiences or papal masses for the last uh, maybe two, two years of his life or more, he was very, very difficult to understand because um, he, he slurred. He, he, couldn't, he had, didn't have full control of his mouth, so he was very difficult to understand. And yet... He persevered. The, the last audience, you can find it on YouTube. Like, it's a bit tragic to look at because all you hear is, it just sounds like, uh, it's just, this, just, just kind of growling his way through it because he can't talk. Uh, but he pushes on and shows the value of suffering to who knows how many million people in my old age and in my suffering and in my cr- on this cross. I continue to serve the Lord and offer it up to him. In, in his book, uh, Be Healed, Bob Schutz speaks about his, his brother. Uh, it's a beautiful book about, about healing. Uh, I strongly recommend it if, if, if you get the chance. He speaks about his brother Dave. And both of them, Bob and Dave, they had a difficult experience in their, in their childhood that the parents split up and it very much hurt both of them. It hurt Dave so much that he went, kind of fell off the rails altogether and uh, fell into a life of drug abuse and addiction. Uh, it affected Bob differently, but we haven't time to go into that now. Dave then found himself uh, very much addicted to, to heroin and his life was just falling apart and he had a child and various relationships and his life was just an absolute disaster. In the long and the, the short of it, uh, he went along to a Christ Renews His Parish retreat. Eventually, he, was, he went along to a retreat uh, with other men and had a profound experience of God's love. 
and made the radical decision to change his life, turn it around, and dedicate his life, or, yeah, order his life towards, towards Christ. He discovered shortly thereafter that he had AIDS. So, this is like a, a contradiction <coughs> to many. I mean, <clears throat> you have AIDS, but you want to follow Christ, but obviously you've made some terrible mistakes. You know, you have this, this, this uh, disease associated with, you know, with drug abuse and dirty needles and so on. And he had this wonderful reaction, just a really kind of profound reaction where he said, I want to be, he said, I know my purpose. I want to be a man with AIDS who lives for Christ. I know my purpose. I want to be a man with AIDS who lives for Christ. And that's, that's what he did. Uh, this degenerative disease then, which little by little just weakened him in every regard. He offered it all to the Lord for his, for, in atonement, I suppose, for his own life, for his own mistakes. And they saw in the family how this started to, to reconcile the family. Their father, who had gone off and lived his own life, uh, came back to see his son. And Bob describes this beautiful scene where back in their, in their home place, their father is sitting at the end of the bed holding Dave, who's sitting on the floor, gasping for his last breaths. And Bob and his wife walk in and they see Dave's father, Bob's father, holding Dave as he left this world and went to the next. But he did so having lived a life, or at the end of his life, as a man with AIDS who lived for Christ. He died reconciled with the family. He died reconciled with Christ. He knew that, that his suffering had a value. It wasn't meaningless. It wasn't a punishment from God. This was something now that he could offer up for the good of his child, for his partners, for his whole family. His suffering had meaning. And it was now transformed into something good. So in our own lives, we don't necessarily suffer like that. There's one uh, Christmas card I got this year from, from uh, a couple who, who watch our Mass here from England. Uh, I won't mention your names, but I think you know who you are. Colin and your wife, Catherine. <laughs> well, no surname, that could be anyone. And, uh, and it was just a beautiful, beautiful Christmas card uh, where Catherine described, just thanked us for the, our masses. And you could see by her writing that her hand is trembling. She's in her around 90 years of age and she's nursing her husband who has Parkinson's. You know, it's just such a beautiful testimony of marriage such a beautiful testimony of, you know, not rebelling against God amidst the cross. Just this, this, these two beautiful hearts that are living for God, taking, loving each other, taking care of each other, and living as people with their various illnesses for Christ. May we follow the example of many of these great saints who have showed us how to live, how to love, how to suffer, and how to offer everything up to the good Lord. Amen.